Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. The report is finally out. The Climate Commission has delivered its final advice. So would a future national government accept its recommendations? Then, a prominent Australian scientist who thinks COVID-19 could very possibly have originated in a lab. The only way to discount the lab theory is to prove uh, the alternative, which is that this came from uh, an intermediate animal source and uh, no such animal source has been found. And the lawyer who cross-examined and prosecuted the so-called mastermind of the Rwandan genocide. What I was hoping to accomplish in all of that was to allow the judges to see his thinking process, to get him to talk enough to be able to convict himself out of his own mouth. We'll have that interview shortly. But first, the government has released the Climate Commission's final advice on New Zealand's path to reducing its climate emissions. The final report was pretty similar to the interim advice which we covered on our last programme with the Q&A special. This week, we went back to some of the panellists from that show to see what they think of the final plan. I think the Commission did a really good job at identifying how we will rise to meeting our climate targets over the next few decades, but now I'm looking to the leaders of our country to fully implement these budgets and to look at the way that food and transport and housing and jobs are distributed throughout the country because climate change is not just an issue to be managed, it's about fundamentally changing the way that we live our everyday lives to be in line with and taking care of the environment. I think farmers will be somewhat relieved that the goalposts haven't shifted on methane reduction. But at the same time, you know, reducing methane by 10% by 2030 is going to be a huge challenge for us, particularly if we're looking to maintain or even build on our current economic contribution. I think it's worth pointing out too that the current Zero Carbon Act targets means that agriculture will actually halt its warming by the 2040s, so coming in early. So it's still a big challenge for us. We're concerned about the uh, lack of um, ambition in terms of bringing the agricultural sector uh, into the emissions reductions uh, uh, activities that are required and we think for too long they've been allowed to kick the can down the road and we think that it's um, disgraceful that the, you know, the greatest polluters are not expected to, to uh, pay for the effects of their pollution uh, going forward. So a mixed bag of responses there. But of course one of the big questions for the Climate Commission is whether different governments will continue to act on the recommendations in the future. Nationals Climate Spokesperson Stuart Smith is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. You've had a little bit of time to digest the final advice. Now, what do you think? Oh, well, we're broadly in support of the budgets themselves within the report. Uh, however, we're much more measured on the rest of the report. Uh, some of the recommendations that are contained in the report don't have any supporting evidence to say what they will achieve in themselves and how much they would cost. Because we have a capped ETS, actually having a policy say, such as a uh, subsidy on EVs doesn't actually lower emissions at all. Because we have what's called the waterbed effect, you push down emissions in one area, it um, bulges up somewhere else in the waterbed. And if you want to lower emissions, you have to take water out of the waterbed, which is effectively lowering the cap, which we can and will do through the trading, emissions trading scheme. OK, let's work through a couple of those different points. Let's start off with the emissions budget. So cross-party support will be critical to provide certainty to, to businesses and, and different sectors in our economy. Will National commit to supporting the emissions budgets as expressed in that final report? At, at, at this stage, we are broadly in support. We just need a little bit more time to go completely through the budgets, but absolutely, we, we've signed up to the uh, zero carbon bill. We, we 
have to get to net zero by 2050 and we require budgets to do that, so absolutely. But the budgets as expressed you're happy with? So far, but that's a qualified so far because mm. we, it's a 400 page report plus mm. several hundred pages of annexes, so we need to go through that all first, but uh, we're get, working our way through that. Okay, from the advice expressed in the report, what do you not support? What are the biggest things that you wouldn't do? Uh, well, I don't see uh, any reason to abandon the ETS or walk away from the, the least cost um, pathway uh, without uh, justification. Now, there will be times when the emissions trading scheme won't achieve uh, uh, something in an area, but that needs to be justified by um, saying what, uh, why it won't work, uh, where it's been tried overseas, what's the evidence, and how much... What, how many tonnes of uh, emissions will it abate and at what cost? Everything else government does is based on cost-benefit analysis. Everything we do is bus based on a cost-benefit analysis. Whether you take a risk running across the street um, jaywalking, you know, you're weighing up the costs and the benefits. And that's exactly the same sort of thing that we would expect to see uh, in the report, and we didn't see that. In the time since New Zealand introduced the emissions trading scheme, what has happened to New Zealand's emissions? Uh, well, under national, we managed to, uh, the national government, we managed to flatten our, our emissions and, and have no uh, rise over nine years. Under the, this current government, in the last three and a bit years, uh, emissions have gone up 2% and we're on our way to burn 2 million tonnes of coal this year. So, well, uh, what does that tell us about the ETS? Uh, it, the ETS is actually working sort of quietly in the background. Uh, we haven't had a cap system until now. That's, uh, that begins uh, in the next year. Right, but you're telling me that in the, in the 11 years or so since the ETS has been in action, it's flattened emissions and then emissions have slightly gone up, but actually we haven't reduced emissions, which is what we clearly need to do if we're to meet our Paris Climate Accord targets. Correct, because we, we didn't have a capped emissions trading scheme up until very recently. What, so difference, what difference will the cap make? You can't emit without an emissions certificate and uh, if you limit the emissions certificate you, you know what your emissions are going to be. Okay. And, and can I give you an example of, of where I think I see it working? Uh, if you take a ride in a taxi or an Uber at the moment, uh, chances are better than 60 or 70 percent of, uh, of those cars are hybrids or e electric cars. And that is because the biggest cost that they have is their fuel, and they can manage that by having a very low uh, emissions vehicle, and they are. So clearly the national, uh, national supports using the ETS much more forcefully than, than relying on some of the other recommendations in the Climate Commission's advice. Does that mean that agriculture would be brought into the ETS? We can't really bring a a agriculture into the ETS at this stage. Right. So agriculture, uh, we, we support the split gas approach, mm. uh, but uh, the government is working with agriculture to try and measure um, emissions on farm, and we support that policy. Okay. So, if I can give you an example, so uh, on the farm we can't measure that. The way, only really way you'd be able to um, bring people into the ETS would be just effectively to tax them. That would be akin to, in a, a transport sense, to say we're only going to charge you so much for how far you travel. Doesn't matter what kind of car you drive, you just have to pay the same for travelling a kilometre. Uh, whereas we, we don't do that, we do it, we charge the fuel, uh, or we have the emissions mm. trading scheme in the fuel, and that incentivises people to have lower, uh, use less fuel or make, make their decisions about whether they buy an EV or a hybrid or, or a lower 
um, more fuel efficient vehicle. Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about um, those biogenic methane reductions. So the national government agreed to a reduction of 25 to 47 percent by 2050 under Paris, and the budgets that you broadly uh, agree with um, expressed by the Climate Commission this week. We need to reduce methane by 8 percent from from 2019 by 2025, but you're not going to bring our biggest emitting sector into the ETS in order to do that? Well, we can't bring them into the ETS because we can't measure it on farm. So how do you bring it down? Well, they already are bringing it down and I think uh, the How do you bring it down by 8% by 2020? Well, the Commissioner has is, is already expressed his confidence that, they, that agriculture will get down to 10% by 2030. And that's, that was what's in their legislation. They have to do that. If not, they will be coming. That's, a, that's part of the legislation and we support that. Okay. How do you bring it down beyond that? Well, uh, there's a lot of work and research going on in that, uh, that area now, and so there will be some technological changes. Uh, but I think, uh, as I've just mentioned before, uh, w under the e uh, Waka Hekanoa uh, program... This is an industry-led program. Industry and government. Uh, and they will find... Uh, they're working their way through and, uh, processes to try and measure on-farm emissions. You can't really manage things unless you can measure them, and that's the difficulty with animal... Uh, emissions, biogenic methane. Is it a good idea to rely on technological advances when we are facing something of this magnitude? Well, we are in terms of electric vehicles, aren't we? It's the same thing. We're, we have we're the, relying we have on the technology in place there, though, don't we? Well, it's, it's, it's getting there. Uh, certainly, it's, it, it's... But, I mean, we know EVs have much, much lower emissions profiles than, than petrol or diesel-powered vehicles. That's true, and uh, we're having great deal of difficulty getting supply around the world at the moment. So we are relying but, on I mean, technology. But we don't have the but we don't have the technology to bring methane reductions down by 25 to 47 percent at the moment. We're really crossing our fingers and just hoping that we can find something. Well, we we are already confident that we're going to get it down by 10 percent by 2030, and that's that's. There's a, a big step though from 10 percent to 25 percent, well, that, isn't that's there? That's quite right, but it's a, it's a, a big change over a period of time. We have to. We can't. Um, just go out I mean, on your mm. your special climate change special. Let's talk about just particularly from mm. the Greenpeace uh, questioner from the audience that we just should get rid of animals. You've got to be very I don't think that was what was suggested, but but reduce uh, stock numbers. Reducing so, stock numbers is something. Is herd numbers is something that yeah. certainly has been. Yeah, suggested. reducing uh, herd numbers. We have to be very careful about that. Um, uh, we uh, are being underpinned or our, mm. our standard of living in New Zealand is being underpinned at the moment by agricultural exports. So we've got to be very careful that we don't uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater if you like and I think that's a real risk here if, if we uh, go off doing silly policies in that area and I don't think there's any suggestion that we will at this stage. Okay, you, you have um, spoken a lot about a car tax. Yes. How do we get people to switch to EVs? I think EVs are becoming more readily available and as I, the example I gave before with the Uber and taxi drivers are, are following that, uh, that lead already. So I think that's going to happen uh, on, in, an, in and of itself and it'll just take some time. Uh, I, the technology's got to be available. I think I note the MTA warned that availability of vehicles was going to be a significant issue, particularly battery material and all that sort of thing. But I'm against... Um, uh, subsidies for EVs, which I think is where you're going, and we're, we're going to get a, an announcement later in the day about EVs. And the reason I am is because it takes um, money out of Papakura and gives it in, and, and lands it all in Parnell. I don't think that's the right thing. It's middle class welfare. So how do you get people to switch to EVs? I think they're going to do that anyway, and, and the price of these vehicles will come down uh, 
uh, we need to as act we go fast. On. This is the point. We need. We know that we need to act really quickly. We need to incentivise some of these changes. EVs for, for some people are more expensive than they should be at the moment. We need to incentivise some of these changes. Well, the people that are buying these vehicles, uh, as I said, is middle class welfare. If you if you incentivise the price of vehicles, who's going to buy them? It's people on higher incomes. It's not the lower end. Well, of if town. that is middle class welfare, what is subsidising agriculture under the ETS? Agriculture is not being subsidised under. It's going the to a ninety five percent subsidy. Yeah, oh, it, but that that is because of leakage. How, what's the difference there? Well, the leakage is quite simple. If you if you care about climate change, uh, then you will realise that climate uh, emissions are global. They don't respect international borders. Mm. So if um, we lower production in New Zealand, uh, it will be picked up offshore, and they are much less efficient uh, producers, and will have higher emissions, and the planet will be worse off. Back, so, to, back to back to vehicles. Would you would a national government ban the import of petrol and diesel powered vehicles by 2035? Uh, no, we haven't. We have not uh, thought about that, and certainly not a policy of ours. And I, I haven't thought about it. No. Well, uh, I think there's very good reasons why you wouldn't do that. But For example, why have you not thought about it? Well, we certainly haven't discussed it as a policy. But why not? Well, because I don't think it's necessary at this stage. And well, I mean, the Climate Commission has raised this, raised this, you know, months ago in the interim report. How can you not have discussed? Climate this? Change Commission uh, mentioned a lot of things in their report and put no cost-benefit analysis uh, next to it, no um, in-depth policy research behind it. So how can we make a judgment? Well, very simply, because we know that agriculture is our biggest emitting sector and that transport is our second biggest, and that if we're asking everyone to do their bit, then we need people to transition to lower emitting forms of transportation. And they will, and, it, and they will do it much more quickly when they realise how much it's costing them. And, and it, as the price of the emissions trading um, certificates go up, and, and they're already at $40, they've gone up, mm. they've doubled in a very short time, that is starting to bite. Let me ask you one final question. Paint me a picture. What, one, one, paint me a picture of New Zealand in 2035 if indeed we are to meet the emissions targets as we've laid them out in the Paris Climate Accord and we're on track with those emissions targets. What does life look like? Oh, we will see much more um, electrified vehicles. I think um, hybrids, plug-in hybrids and EVs. I think there's no doubt about that. That's going to happen anyway. There'll probably be more use of um, public transport in New Zealand, although, albeit that we are not that well suited to it because of the layout of our cities, this city being one of them. Um, so I, I think those things will change. Energy costs will be higher, um, uh, particularly the energy that's being uh, produced by uh, fossil fuels. But in my own case, in my own home, I'm doubling the size of my um, solar array on my house, so I'm, make, I'm making those decisions as many others will be doing. And, and uh, beast numbers in New Zealand, herd numbers the same or, or I, I think we will, we, by 2030 we will be da uh, have 10% uh, lower emissions. I don't know that um, stock numbers will have, have uh, reduced necessarily that much. I think there will be some mm. uh, of that. Um, there will be more efficiencies. We know there are efficiencies to be gained there, but you have to be able to measure things before you can manage it. Farmers are very uh, capable people. They respond very well to market signals, and I'm sure that they will uh, be uh, much more efficient by 2035 than they are now. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Well, you're welcome. Coming up on Q&A, the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor on bridging the political and scientific worlds. And then, could COVID-19 really have started in a lab? The Australian professor who's been outspoken about the need for a thorough investigation. Hoki mai we welcome back to Q&A. 
Earlier this year, after months of delays from the Chinese government, the World Health Organization sent a team to Wuhan to look into the origins of COVID-19. One of those experts, Australian microbiologist Dominic Dwyer, told Q&A he thought it was unlikely the virus began in a lab. And many of these bat coronaviruses, at least the ones that are very closely related to the SARS coronavirus, uh, actually haven't been cultured in the lab. They're only a genetic sequence rather than a live virus. But the lab theory has regained traction in recent weeks, with US President Joe Biden calling for an urgent investigation. The origins of the virus have massive geopolitical implications. One scientist who has consistently supported the possibility of the lab theory is Australian endocrinologist and professor of medicine Nikolai Petrovsky. I asked him what he thinks is the likeliest origin for COVID-19. So really, we, we can, can't say. What, what we, we, we can say is that right now, um, you know, there's a number of possibilities. One, one is, you know, as we've seen with previous pandemics, that this was a crossover event uh, from some intermediate animal host uh, to humans. Uh, which most likely occurred in China. Um, but the, the other possibility, which we similarly can't discount, is that this was a virus that was being studied in a laboratory uh, and, and accidentally got released uh, from that laboratory. So at the moment, really, we, we don't have a lot of evidence either way. So you'd have to say they're both uh, equally possible. Why couldn't we discount the lab theory? Well, of course, the only way to discount the lab theory is to prove uh, the alternative, which is that this came from uh, an intermediate animal source. And uh, no such animal source has been found, despite obviously uh, intensive uh, investigation uh, by the Chinese uh, amongst all the animal populations uh, to see if they could find an intermediate host, and they haven't. Of, of course, you know, that... Um, doesn't prove it isn't an animal source, but it makes it less likely. And of course, that then increases the possibility there's another explanation. From the earlier stages of this outbreak, you've urged the scientific community not to discount the lab theory until it could be proven otherwise. I appreciate it is just a theory at this stage. But if indeed that is how COVID-19 was created, how do you think the virus escaped the lab? So, We've put forward a, a number of different scenarios by which this could happen. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it ranges from the idea that a, a, a researcher who's collecting virus samples from, say, bat caves, which we know was happening uh, prior to this outbreak, uh, may have themselves got infected um, by, by the, uh, in the process of the collection and, and then travelled back to, to the laboratory in Wuhan, not knowing that they were infected, because, of course, uh, it, with the initial virus, it's about a week before you develop any symptoms. So they, they could innocently have gone back to the lab um, and, and then started the outbreak by, you know, infecting someone else either in the lab or their family. So, so that, that would be the simplest explanation uh, uh, for how this might have happened. But... Of course, we also know that, you know, they were not only collecting the viruses in, in these bat caves, but, but also culturing them in the laboratory. And, and when you do that, 
by definition, you're adapting the virus uh, depending on how you're culturing them. And that can make the virus as much more prone to infect humans. So it, it you know, it, it's quite possible that in the process of culturing a virus, you, you either deliberately or just by nature of what you're doing, you make the, the virus much more uh, able to infect human cells. And then accidentally you touch a plate and you touch your mouth. Um, you know, that's all it takes to, to accidentally infect yourself in a laboratory. This has happened in the past, so it's not wouldn't be the first time. Um, of course, the, the, the so that's sort of you could say the innocent laboratory um, accidental release, and, and then you of course you you have I guess the the more extreme view where people were deliberately trying to manipulate this virus to make it more infectious for human cells. So that that requires a knowing element. Uh, and then again, the same sort of process, they accidentally either infect themselves or they don't dispose of the waste from the laboratory appropriately, so they don't inactivate the waste. It goes to a rubbish dump, it gets picked up by an animal, they then infect a human or a human mm. in the rubbish, you know, collecting or processing rubbish gets infected by the waste and, and then transmits it to other people. So there's a lot of different routes uh, that could be involved in, in a, what we call a lab leak type scenario. The WHO sent 10 investigators to Wuhan earlier this year. They concluded it was unlikely the virus started in the Wuhan lab. What did you make of that investigation? So I think the first thing is WHO have retreated from calling it an investigation themselves. Um, so so I don't think we, we should call it an investigation, nor should we call of the scientists who were selected to be part of that delegation uh, to be investigators because again those scientists have said they didn't have any skills uh, in investigating in a forensic sense a laboratory leak possibility so so really that that whole mission was was more of a, a scientific exchange between china and the who it, it wasn't the, in in the true sense an investigation into the origins of the virus. So I think we need to be very cautious in accepting any of, of the report in terms of its conclusions as to where this virus came from, because basically the panel wasn't actually competent at addressing that question and have admitted so themselves. Watching this debate from outside of the scientific community, it is at times felt as though geopolitics and science have blended and it's been very hard to distinguish between the two when it comes to people's motivations as to the theory behind the virus. Do you get a similar sense? Look, um, I mean, if you said what really created problems for the whole debate, which should have been an open scientific debate, uh, was actually when President Trump himself, um, you know, in a sense blurted out that he had read material that indicated there was a strong risk this was a laboratory leak. And from that point, it, it was seen that, you know, there were two sides to this mm. debate. There was the, the right-wing sort of Republican side who were pushing this sort of lab leak possibility. And then everyone else, you know, which is most of the scientific community, which tend to be more left-leaning, to be honest, as scientists, that's just the way it is. Um, that, you know, they went the other way and said, well, if, if Trump and the Republicans are saying it's a lab leak, 
we're going to deny that possibility and try and make them look like fools. So very rapidly, the science became politicised. Uh, and so it wasn't about the science at all. And the few of us which kept just saying, hey, science is about having an open mind. It isn't about picking political sides. Look, maybe, you know, Trump was wrong in his conclusion to what he said, but it, his conclusion didn't change the science, which was we didn't have any evidence either way. We had to keep both possibilities open. You've developed your own coronavirus vaccine, COVAX-19. I know it didn't initially receive the federal funding, which would have helped uh, with its development. But what is the role of vaccine developers now? Are you looking at the various mutations of COVID-19 and adapting your vaccine? Yeah, look, um, you know, although we, we do have uh, obviously a number of vaccines that are now available uh, in, in almost every country in limited supplies, including, I think, New Zealand, um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that, that that's enough. Um, we know that the current vaccine supply is insufficient to supply the whole world uh, with vaccine, and that's going to be the case for at least two to three years going forward before everyone on the planet uh, gets at least one shot of vaccine. So we do need more vaccine. And, and there are, you know, limitations on each technology. You know, we've seen side effects, obviously, with the AstraZeneca causing thrombosis, uh, particularly in younger women. Um, so that means that population no longer is recommended to have that vaccine. So there are big holes. There's also, of course, no vaccine is yet approved in, in children under the age of 12, and that's a large part of the world's population. So, so clearly there is a need for, for additional alternatives, including ours, which is a protein-based vaccine. There's currently no approved protein-based vaccine, recombinant protein-based vaccine, anywhere available anywhere in the world. So that's the market we're looking to. And the benefits of protein-based vaccines are exactly, you know, those situations. They're very safe in young children because all of the current childhood vaccines are based around that technology. Um, you know, they should be safe in, in young women and safe in the elderly. So, so absolutely, we're pushing forward. We, you know, we know that there's a massive demand for our vaccine because many countries have actually expressed interest in obtaining it as soon as we have approval. Well, good luck. We really appreciate your time, Dr. Nick Petrovsky. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Dr. Nick Petrovsky. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us qa at tvnz.co.nz. Up next, the scientist with the Prime Minister's ear throughout the pandemic. Kia ora koutou. Welcome back to Q&A. Of all the times to be a scientist advising the highest level of government, the response to a global pandemic brings with it a, a burden of substantial responsibility. Having been in the role throughout the pandemic, Professor Dame Juliet Gerrard has been reappointed as the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor for another three-year term. Kia ora. The scientific community knew well the potential for a pandemic. As a scientist in an influential role, how has it been to witness and respond to something of this magnitude? In many ways, it's been really surreal. So, as you say, it was a theoretical possibility and uh, in all honesty, quite a likely one of all the emergencies that might have struck, but you never actually expect it to happen on your watch. So it's been a huge privilege. 
um, just to watch the scientific community globally and nationally rise up and really help solve the problem. How have you found that role bridging the political and scientific worlds? It's been a challenge for sure. So when something new happens like COVID-19, there's lots of new rapidly evolving evidence and lots of times when the evidence changes from week to week. And so keeping on top of what we know and expressing what we know and what we don't know, the uncertainty, connecting to the scientific community and delivering it in a palatable form that, that the Prime Minister and Cabinet can really digest has been a big challenge. What is your relationship with Jacinda Ardern like? Good, I hope. She just reappointed me. <laughs> <laughs> and you have been made a dame. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, does she ever reject your advice? Science advice doesn't really work like that. So the scientists don't say you should do this or you should do that. What they say is here's a range of scenarios and that presents some choices. So it, it's not a situation that's likely to lead to conflict. All I can do is put the evidence forward as clearly as I can and then um, it's up to the Prime Minister and Cabinet to make the actual decisions. Talk to us a little bit more about how you present that information then. So, so and can you perhaps think of an example where you go in and you say these are different scenarios and is there a way that you can try and steer political leaders towards what you think is the most appropriate response from a scientific perspective? Yeah, again, it's, it's what's appropriate from a scientific perspective and what the political decisions are. So for COVID, there are various scenarios that were mapped out early on by all the different modelers that I was connecting with. Um, you might have an own personal value judgment about which one you personally think is correct, but that's not the science advisor's role. The science advisor's role is to say, here's one where the health system may break, here's one where we may not have any cases and various ones in the middle. And it's really a political decision, not a scientific decision at that point. How do your international colleagues um, think about New Zealand's response to COVID-19? They're quite fascinated by it. So all the way through the pandemic, a group of chief science advisors from around the world kept in very close contact. And obviously, while the science advice didn't vary that much from science advisor to science advisor, the policy response did. Mm. And so they've kept a very close eye on what's happening. Um, we just had an interview with an Australian professor who, who has been saying throughout the pandemic that the possibility of the lab leak theory shouldn't be discounted. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's, um, Scientists will never discount any theory, but there are so many different ways it could have happened. And the wet market sitting right there as a very plausible theory and a perfect environment for viruses to emerge. I think a better focus would be on how we stop it happening again and shutting down wet markets that have all those mixtures of animals in a close, wet, cold space would be top of the list of things to really hit. Are there lessons for laboratories as well? There are always lessons for laboratories to make sure they're as safe as possible. What have you learned about misinformation throughout this period? That's probably the single biggest challenge for the last three years. I guess the biggest thing I've learned is talking to people like Jess Burtz and Shaw, who are experts in misinformation. It's not to go head to head with people and try and disprove them. It's instead to put forward a, a more sensible narrative um, that counters them without going head to head on every point. See, that's interesting because it's, um, in a sense, I mean, that, that's, that's not necessarily outside of your remit as a scientist, but it's not area, an area that you would have focused on in the past. The communication of science isn't necessarily a, a primary focus in your research, for example. Yeah, I've always been interested in how to communicate science clearly. Um, often the misinformation isn't actually about the science details, it's more of a values position. And so just presenting an evidence-based narrative 
that allows people who are maybe looking at the conspiracy theory, looking at the facts, trying to find a way through the maze, I think is the only way we can really tackle it. But it's a huge challenge for science internationally. Do you bring those concerns and concerns around misinformation into the scenarios and advice that you offer politicians? Yes, there's a lot of work that's going on in that area, so it wouldn't be something that I'd personally advised on, so the PM hasn't asked for that particularly, but there's work, for example, at Tipuna Matatini on misinformation and how that spreads and how that happens in the context of New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, trust is, is so important, you know, and, and clearly we live in a, in a misinformation age, and it's not just COVID-19. I note that um, you've just released advice on fluoridation of water. You confirm that fluoridation of water is safe. What do you think are the single best ways for politicians to push back against misinformation campaigns? I think some clarity on where the evidence is coming from and some honesty about the uncertainty and an acceptance that there will always be stray scientific results that raise concerns, and we should take those seriously, mm. but not discount the rest of the balance of the evidence. So. Mm. The pandemic has, has emphasised the value of scientific expertise. We've all become versed in genomic sequencing and, and viral mutations, but it has also heightened some of the divisions within the scientific community. Here, I think it's um, probably best personified by um, Simon Thornley and the Plan B team and, and I know that um, you, you are both University of Auckland academics. H have you got any thoughts on Plan B and, and Simon Thornley? Again that's one that I haven't tackled head to head um, but I guess my overarching observation would be that much of the evidence that Plan B presents is very similar to what the rest of the world presents but it's really a values proposition. So if you look at policy positions in places like Sweden it's really on whether you value keeping the whole community safe for an extended period of time or whether you would rather um, take a different view in which you accept that the disease will go through the population. Do you think the New Zealand scientific community has handled its divisions well throughout this period? Yeah, I think we've been pretty good. I mean, there's been a diversity of views, but the key messages, um, everyone's been really on the same page. Yeah. And I think if there weren't a diversity of views, I'd be more worried as a scientist because it's that debate that moves things forward and that's how we gain new knowledge. Do you think scientists, in order to be effective communicators, should refrain from using public platforms to express political views? That's always a challenge. So when scientists want to be advocates, they have to be really careful to take off their I'm using the evidence hat and put on their and having seen the evidence, this is what I personally view hat. That's quite a nuanced tightrope, and I think a few scientists do fall off it. How so? I, I think that the risk is that people are so passionate about what they're doing that they see the evidence through a particular personal lens. So it's always a challenge for scientists to be as objective as possible, and clouding what your experiment said with what you think should happen is, is always going to be too challenging for some people. Can, can you think of an example where, that, where that's happened, the scientists we would know? No. <laughs> really? <laughs> How do you see this pandemic ending? That's something that is keeping a lot of people awake at night. And so the uneven distribution of vaccines around the world is going to be a real challenge. So if we want to open up for travel and some parts of the world haven't yet been vaccinated, then that's going to present logistical challenges that are 
unseen as yet. Mm. Um, so some countries, like Israel is the one that we're watching really closely, have got really good coverage with the Pfizer vaccine. They're just starting to open up so we can see how that goes. But we're a long way from out of the woods in terms of global vaccine coverage. So it could be a couple of years at least before we start to see enough coverage that we don't have to think about COVID-19. Congratulations on your reappointment. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Professor Dame Juliet Gerard. Up next, the responsibility and rigours of cross-examining someone accused of genocide. Certainly in those moments and, and, and in those weeks, it was a very challenging time. But remember, we were in that trial for many years. Kia ora te whanau. Welcome back to Q&A. When a genocide began in Rwanda against the Tutsi and their supporters, New Zealand used its position on the UN Security Council to try and spur the international community into action. It didn't work. But having failed to stop the violence, shortly afterwards, the United Nations established a special criminal tribunal to hold the genocide perpetrators to account. Prosecutor Drew White QC played a key role. And a warning, some of the pictures in this report may be upsetting. Across three months in 1994, Rwanda witnessed one of the deadliest genocides of the modern era. Hundreds of thousands of ethnic Tutsi and their supporters were massacred in a genocide orchestrated by Hutu leaders. Some estimates put the total death toll at more than a million people. The violence was extreme. At times, perpetrators used machetes. As many as half a million women were raped. Having failed to stop the bloodshed, shortly after the violence, the United Nations established an international tribunal to prosecute those responsible. Among the accused, Colonel Teonesta Bagasoro. Described as the mastermind of the genocide, he was the highest-ranking military official in place throughout the bloodshed. Bagasora gave evidence in his own defence, with Canadian prosecutor Drew White doing key parts of the cross-examination. Colonel, in fact, this march that I've referred to and this massacre was under your orders and your supervision, wasn't it? I never gave any instructions or orders for this alleged massacre. After an exhaustive trial, Bagasora was convicted of genocide. Sentenced to 35 years in prison upon appeal, the so-called mastermind of the Rwandan genocide remains behind bars today. In total, Drew White QC helped to prosecute six different perpetrators of the genocide. Normally based in Vancouver, Drew is currently visiting Aotearoa. I sat down with him this week and began by asking him to reflect on the significance of the Rwanda tribunal prosecutions. Well, I like to think that they had a, a big effect on the development of international criminal justice, uh, not only because the very first conviction for genocide was through the tribunal of Rwanda, but also because through the continuing jurisprudence and the multiplicity of cases that, that developed, a lot of the, the nuts and bolts of how international criminal justice can work uh, was resolved. So keeping in mind that there were some 50 years between the creation of the Genocide Convention and the first conviction for genocide, there wasn't a lot of background. There was no background uh, to be able to determine how these cases would proceed. And so we would wind up spending time in the, in the courtroom arguing about some things that in a national jurisdiction have been resolved generations ago. And 
having to work through those issues and having to come to a result and having convictions in dozens and dozens of cases. So then convicting and extracting perpetrators from society, dozens of, of big fish, of senior politicians and military officials, I think was a very significant contribution to the overall effect of, of the creation of international criminal justice. I think it set the stage for the International Criminal Court to develop. Colonel Taunist Bagasora was described as the Himla of the genocide. Can you tell me a little bit about the pressure and the weight of responsibility that comes from prosecuting and cross-examining someone like that? Mm. Well, when we were trying Colonel Bagasora, it was also in conjunction with three of his uh, uh, military cohorts. So there was a trial of four senior officers. And they clearly, uh, in their defense strategy, were working together. And because the evidence that, uh, that supported the crime was spread over an entire country and, and an, an entire year, there was a massive amount of evidence. So there was a significant, a significant burden in terms of bringing all that forth and trying to present it in a, uh, an understandable and palatable way for the judges. Of course, all of that came to a head with the, with the choice of Colonel Bagasora to give evidence in his own defense. And he testified for about 17 days, uh, of which about a third of that I cross-examined him on. So for me, personally, that was the, the pinnacle of the challenge that we faced, was the cross-examination of Colonel Bagasora. And what I was hoping to accomplish in all of that was to allow the judges to see his thinking process to get him to talk enough to be able to convict himself out of his own mouth. And uh, I believe he did that. I helped him to do that. I asked him enough questions about enough things that he was involved in that he basically convicted himself. The judges eventually found him responsible for the assassination of the prime minister, the assassination of the president of the constitutional court, of the 10 Belgian peacekeepers and many others, in addition to being the primary planner and organizer of this uh, process for the military to participate in the genocide. So uh, I like to think we helped him along in, in finding con a conviction. At a personal level though, knowing the, the gravity of the crimes and of the genocide that had occurred, did that weigh on you in those moments and, and over those weeks as you cross-examined him? Certainly in those moments and, and, and in those weeks, it was a very challenging time. But remember, we were in that trial for many years. Mm. And, you know, we had to, uh, my wife and I had to leave Canada. We had to go to East Africa. We had to find a place to live in a, you know, a dusty little place and, and stay there for more than half a decade just doing this case. So it stayed with you every night and every day you'd wake up. And the real challenge was, in some respect, not so much dealing with Bagasaur in the courtroom, because I, I hoped and I wished I'd get that opportunity. The real challenge was really dealing with the, the witnesses, and particularly the survivor witnesses, uh, telling you their stories, some of whom they would never tell anyone else. And they were ch very challenged to repeat these things. They were traumatized by not just the events, but the recollection of those events. And to know how many of those people trusted in the process and trusted in me to help them through it. That was a real burden. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud to say that, uh, that we did help a lot of those people. I think many of them came to me after the testimony and told me that it was a very healing process for them.
in studying a person like Colonel Bagasora, who I think the prosecution described as one of the enemies of the human race, what did you learn about human beings? Well, I described him as one of the enemies of the human race in the closing arguments because that is part of a legal standard. Um, I wasn't just trying to be flip with it, um, but one of the things I learned from dealing with the victims was how resilient the human spirit is in the face of immense tragedy. And I have a lot of respect for the Rwandan people, um, the people not just who suffered by losing individuals, but who witnessed things. Uh, and sometimes, to be honest, even some of the perpetrators that I spoke with, I have respect for because they eventually, some of them, came clean and acknowledged what they had done and were looking for some redemption. So resilience, I think, is something I was left with. I really, really respect the fact that these, this entire group, this entire country of people went through such a tragedy and have come out of it uh, so strongly afterwards. You were witness to the extremes of, of human capacity in both a, a, a good and inspiring sense and an you know, incredibly disturbing way. Yes, that's true. The incredibly disturbing part would be, for example, dealing with the evidence of, of tragic events, you know, literally photos and videos, not just testimony, but some real evidence that you'd have to struggle with. Uh, and of course, seeing the effects afterwards is what you know, lifted your heart and gave you, gave you hope that, in fact, something good would come out of this. And, and my view was that this was all part of a much larger process, a process that I don't think you and I will live to see the end of in our lifetimes. It's the process of creation of an international system of justice. We're really just at a stage of infancy here. When most of us think about the Rwandan genocide, we think about those short and awful few months in 1994. But is the genocide over? Mm. Well, you see I'm wearing the ribbon here for the Kwabuka Memorial. This is, we're in the genocide period, the memorial period as we speak now, which is traditionally recognized as the 100 days measured from the 6th of, of April 1994 until uh, July of 1994. But the reality is that that was a concentrated part of the genocide, where most of the killing, where most of the crimes took place. But the truth is that the ideological dependence and, 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 and descendants of those crimes are with us today. Uh, we are still seeing the process of uh, polarization, of dehumanization, uh, of, of uh, classification of individuals into us and them that defines uh, part of the process of genocide. It's referred to as genocide denial and revisionism. And we're deeply into that now. Uh, 27 years after the concentrated killings, what we're seeing is, to be honest with you, we're seeing a revival of the defense strategy that, that, that the perpetrators used in order to try and uh, escape responsibility. We're seeing uh, and the claims that the Tutsis uh, in Rwanda triggered the event themselves. We're seeing claims that uh, it was actually a spontaneous uprising of Hutu citizens and not a planned or organized military political uh, uh, group that, that set the genocide in motion. And that's completely wrong. It's been found by trial courts over and over again by appeal courts as well, 
that in fact this was organized at the highest level. Does the genocide denial happen only in Rwanda and those surrounding countries or does it happen in places like New Zealand? Well, we certainly see elements of it in, uh, in media presentations uh, and individuals speaking to media. Um, one of the tests that one might have is whether or not we're speaking about the genocide against the Tutsis. If, if you hear someone speaking simply about genocide in Rwanda, you might be questioning whether they're really thinking there was something else going on there. We don't blame Hutu for killing Tutsi. We blame the political and military officials for creating the conditions. And it's important to distinguish that it's the genocide against the Tutsi because of these claims that the Tutsi deserved it, they triggered it. Who is responsible for genocide denial and how do we spot it? Well, really, the genocide denial is continued to be spread about by many of the perpetrators who fled Rwanda. The tribunal managed to catch and, and, and convict a few. Rwanda managed to catch uh, and convict a few more, and they processed more than 100,000 individual perpetrator cases through their own international justice system. So the small fish and some of the big fish are out of the picture. But a lot of the mid-level fish and some of the big fish are still out there. They fled, some to Europe, some to other parts of the world. And we hear their, their claims about this spontaneous outburst of anger. New Zealand's government recently chose not to label the situation in Xinjiang in China, a genocide. There are multiple other situations in the world right now, the likes of Myanmar and Ethiopia, where genocide has been alleged. It is a word that carries a lot of weight. Do you think leaders should be using it more? I, I think that we do want to recognize when genocide is happening and that when the precursors to genocide are happening around the world, but I'm not sure it's fair to suggest that politicians ought to be taking that on their shoulders. I mean, by analogy, the mayor of Wellington doesn't allege that the mayor of, of Auckland is failing to, to uh, follow up on crimes in Auckland. I think when we, when we put this on the, the weight on the shoulders uh, of, the, uh, of the politicians to make these kinds of statements, we really should be expecting justice officials to be making that, which is what would happen independently here if there are crimes in, within New Zealand domestically. You don't expect the politician to stand up and say, you know, we're going to charge that person. That's the job of the justice officials. And the problem is we don't have that level of international justice to be able to stand up and, and deal with that. So I think it highlights the, the failings of the international justice system. Having said that, I, I also think that when politicians are faced with these questions, they have to deal with it in a diplomatic manner. It's not a system of justice that they're dealing with. Uh, they're choosing and weighing out the consequences of what they're going to say. Uh, but, you know, the Genocide Convention is actually called the, the Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. And New Zealand, of course, is a party. They were a party uh, from the very beginning. Um, <clears throat> that convention, that treaty, is a legal document, but it has only a moral obligation 
to do something. It doesn't have any sanctions. It doesn't have any, any processes. Mm -hmm. So simply calling it genocide doesn't result in having to do any one particular thing. And so does it really matter whether a politician stands up and says it's genocide or it's a, a, a grave human rights violation? I'm not sure. I, we definitely want to pay attention to it, and, uh, but I'm not sure that we want to place the burden of deciding what the evidence is on a politician's shoulders. Are international organizations any better equipped today to stop another Rwandan genocide? As compared to 1994? Uh, yeah, they're better equipped today in the sense that uh, there have been uh, the creation of departments and organizations and non-governmental organizations to follow up on these things and, and bring forth the evidence in a way that didn't exist in 1994. So for example, uh, there are offices within the United Nations specifically focused on genocide now. On the other hand, overall, particularly the United Nations, is not very well equipped to deal with these situations now because the Security Council, uh, through its five permanent members, has really faced a lot of deadlock and they really are not able to agree on very much anymore. So when it comes to a situation like China, we're not going to get a declaration by the Security Council that China is engaged in a, in a genocide, not only because China is one of the five permanent members with the veto, but because the other members aren't going to antagonize China. There, there's, there's too much uh, national interest at stake with respect to that. What would be a real improvement is if the so-called five permanent members did not become permanent members or at least gave up the veto. If, and particularly if they gave up the veto with respect to these types of crimes. That is Drew White, QC. Stick around, we will be back after the break. We were almost out of time this Sunday, but if you're looking for more from the Q&A team, go to our Facebook page. We reporter Fina Owen caught up with more first-term MPs after a few months in the job. I think also the rural sector were very worried about capital gains tax and perhaps also what might happen if Greens were part of the government. So I They think, don't like Greens down here. Um, well, they're nervous about them. They're nervous. Farmers are nervous about it. Yeah born on Christmas Day, but people ask me, what's it like to be born on Christmas Day? And I'm like, well, on my other birthday, because actually I don't know, I've only got one birthday, so I've only experienced um, Christmas, um, my birthday on Christmas Day. Yeah. Yeah. But my, my oldest daughter used to say to me, Dad, you're born on Christmas Day, you're like the mouldy Jesus. So, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> that full story is available online now. But that is us, Kuomotu. It's Q&A for this week. Nga mihikia koutoui ngā karere. Thank you for watching. Thanks to the Q&A team. Marae's up next. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.